If you like what you hear, consider subscribing and giving us a review over on Apple Podcasts. Especially early in the feed, subscriptions and reviews are super helpful for bringing new listeners our way. Thank you. Hey everybody and welcome back to the Goblins and Growlers podcast. I am Josh Maltby. And I am Brandon Dingus, uh, less enthusiastic, but just as present as Josh Maltby. <laughs> uh, thank you for tuning in to this new edition of the Goblins and Growlers podcast. So I've been I've been trawling Twitter, as I sometimes do. Mm-hmm. And I've been seeing a lot of combative talk from various DMs about the presence of sci-fi elements in their fantasy games and how appropriate or inappropriate they are. And something I feel like we've discussed a couple of times, but never really explored as fully as either of us would like, is Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, which is probably the first instance I can think of of sci-fi getting mixed into my D&D chocolate and peanut butter style. Yeah, the um, as far as I'm concerned, that's kind of like the granddaddy of that kind of thing. But I'm sure somebody's going to be like Gamma World or something like that, <laughs> <laughs> that I just don't have ex- like something else from the 70s that I don't have experience with. Um, but I mean, if you want to if you want to get into like sci fi and fantasy combination things like I don't think Star Wars was out yet. Was Fire and Ice? Fire and Ice was out then, right? I'm not sure because I actually have never read any of those. I don't. Well, I'm only thinking of the film. Oh, which I think, which I think was like mid seventies. I don't know. <laughs> Regardless, like this is this is something that, at the very least, this is the earliest example yeah. I can think of in D and D in particular. Yeah. I mean, this was like seventy six uh, when he started working on this, so that predates Star Wars coming out in seventy eight. Um, oh se- yeah, seventy like seventy seven, seventy eight. Um, and I, I even would like. Uh, I would say that Star Wars is a science fantasy in a different way than this, because this Barrier Peaks is fantasy and science fiction smashed together. Star Wars kind of like weaves it together into more of like a unified thing. But anyway, for anybody who doesn't know what Expedition to Barrier Peaks is, it is a classic uh, D&D module. It was uh, like uh, it was written by Gary Gygax, the co-creator of Dungeons and Dragons. He started working on it back in uh, 1976. Uh, I think uh, it didn't actually get like published published until like 1980, but it was played at um, like the second Origins uh, gaming con in 76. But he wrote it because uh, like TSR, the company that wizards of the coast bought to own dungeons and dragons tsr was thinking about doing a science fantasy role-playing game uh and gygax thought it would be a good idea to introduce those kind of concepts to uh a DD audience this way so spoiler alert um the whole point of it is the duke hires you hires your party to go investigate these weird monsters that are coming from this mountain the party goes into the mountain and uh, not like like the party doesn't figure this out, but the players are supposed to figure this out as it goes on. Like you're actually in a crash spaceship and you're fighting aliens. Which is a concept that I love. I love the idea of 
high high fantasy adventurers are like oh a weird metal door and the players are like uh oh there's like shoots where the platforms move on their own what's what strange sorcery might this be my my stalwart traveling companions and the players are like now hold on a minute that's what mm, mm, we're getting into some very Star Trek territory here. Josh is such a fan of this genre mashup. He camped overnight to be one of the first people to get tickets to Cowboys and Aliens <laughs> when it came out. <laughs> that's a, that's apocryphal, but I appreciate your faith in me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so, you know, the players go through this strange world and it's supposed to like dawn on the players themselves, not the party, what's happening. And just there's supposed to be kind of like a, a mind blowing thing, I mean, you know, and apparently this was very, very well received uh, at the Origins Con uh, in 76. And um, I can't remember why it wasn't published as quickly, because there were a couple of things that he debuted at that Origins Con that were very quickly like published in the next couple of years, because this is one of like the special modules that they published in like the early 80s and stuff. But um, I think it was one of those things where like that. Yeah, this was a cool idea, but they just sort of put it in a drawer for a little bit. But I mean, uh, taking taking a stab in the dark, I could absolutely see Gary Gygax's publisher reading the adventure and being like, what were you on when you wrote this? We can't. No, we're not going to publish this right now. We're mm -hmm. going to publish these other things. This can this can go on the back burner maybe forever. Mm -hmm. And like when he. And when he started developing the rules for like second edition for AD&D, apparently he was trying to find a way to integrate science into that as well. I could be getting that totally wrong, but that's what I like understood. So maybe this was just kind of a thing. And he was just like, well, we'll just hang out with this for a while and, and see how this works. But this is probably one of the more well-known and more beloved of those early modules that came out back in the day. Like this is... I don't know. This is like an uh, the Oliver Twist, I guess, uh, classic literature of of D and D history. I uh, was I was going to make a comparison to Rocky Horror Picture Show, where it's something that's so unusual and kind of confounding mm -hmm. that it it ultimately becomes something that people either people have really strong opinions about in mm -hmm. the fashion that they either love it or they hate it. And most of the people who hate it are told that they just don't get it by the people who love it. Yeah. You know, one of the most <laughs> one of the people who's been very like like a famous person who's been very open about really loving this is Stephen Colbert. Uh, he has said a couple of different times that this is probably his favorite module ever that he ever played. And he played a lot of D&D &D as a kid. Um, and I don't think this is a case where they were like, what's your favorite D&D &D module? And this was just the first one that came to his mind. He's always struck me as a guy who knows what he's talking about when it comes to this kind of stuff. He has debates with guests on his show about Lord of the Rings history. So I'm pretty I'm pretty sure he's legit and he comes by his love for this pretty honestly. I was going to say you being such a deep lover of Lord of the Rings mythos, I'm not surprised to hear you speak Stephen Colbert's name with a small amount of reverence. He he makes us look good. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so. So you get together, you're invited to play some D&D &D with your friends. Uh, a friend of yours is DMing. Uh, you're really looking forward to it. You're amping yourself up for, you know, a fantasy adventure, as I like to call it, Elves in the Woods, which is a uh, pet peeve of mine, really. 
and you sit down and it becomes this sort of pseudo sci-fi fantasy sci-fi adventure. Do you feel like that's like a bait and switch or do you think it's a surprise and delight kind of thing? I'm trying to imagine sitting down. Because remember, it's 1976 and people are a lot less genre savvy. Right. Well, science fiction in general isn't nearly as advanced as it is now. Like there's certainly stuff that talks about like androids and flying cars mm. and robots and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. But I'm trying I'm trying to put myself in the headspace of science fiction in general is kind of a niche genre. Yeah. Star Trek has been off the off the air at this point for like six or seven years. We're still a few years away from Star Trek, the motion picture. We're one or two years away from Star Wars coming out. Like, you know, you've got you've got stuff like 2001, but that's like very much a different kind of sci fi. There's a lot of this stuff that ends up feeling like niche nerd culture that has not yet become classics and you know genre change like they are genre changers but they don't feel like society-wide genre changers yet mm -hmm. because a lot of people may have watched them but a lot of people also were like oh i don't know that's not really my thing right so i'm trying to imagine sitting down and anticipating an adventure that involves some dungeons and perhaps if i'm fortunate or unfortunate depending on your viewpoint some dragons and I end up in a spaceship shooting laser guns at aliens and finding key cards. I think, honestly, <laughs> you've just described doom. <laughs> it is. There's a lot of doom elements in here, honestly. Um, I so the, so like the expedition to Barrier Peaks movie is going to star the rock. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully that one turns out a little bit more true to form than the doom movie did. <laughs> Uh, no. So I think I think I personally would be thrilled because I my entire life, I've been very fascinated by and excited for whatever I can get my hands on for science fiction. I grew up very much being a Star Wars kid. As I got a little bit older, I was really excited to get into Star Trek and kind of see the more like philosophical aspects of things and a little bit less the like, oh, my God, they're flying so fast and they're shooting lasers at each other. And it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And a lot more of the like, can we really put this entire nebula at risk all in the name of our own hubris? Like I, I there's something I think I realize this is going to be a little bit controversial, but for me personally, I appreciated Star Trek a lot more the more I got interested in philosophy and the less I got interested in really uh, catchy action pieces and catchy soundtrack bits. Yeah, let's like, let's digress there for just one second, because that is 100 percent true, <laughs> even going back to TOS and uh, some of the standout philosophical episodes from that. Like, I think that's a big part of why uh, the J.J. Abrams Kelvin timeline movies uh, are not so well received, because I think Chris Pine was in an interview at one point and he like literally said something to the effect of like, we can't do those kind of stories anymore because it's not what people are looking for. And, and that's a lie. Yeah. It's so, a dirty lie. Yeah. So that's why the Abrams films are like an uh, like action films with a Star Trek patina on them is how I like to describe them. Anyway, I don't like them. They're fine, but I would never go out of my way to see them. I don't nothing against the cast. I think Carl Urban is a fantastic Dr. McCoy. I just don't care for the movies. I, I enjoyed those movies. 
Um, I also still enjoy, I should say, Star Wars before people start coming for me being a traitor fanboy. Mm -hmm. uh, I still love Star Wars. I was a little disappointed with New Trilogy, but that's that's a whole other conversation that we do not need to get into. We'll have right a three part now. discussion on that specifically on the, <laughs> the sequel trilogy. We should have we should have nine. Uh, we should have a nine part discussion, but release the middle three first. That's a good idea. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so, anyway. So, so I think I, as a child, would be thrilled to start out being like, OK, we're going to swords and sorcery and gold pieces and leather armor and then be like, oh, my God, what laser guns and auto doors and vacuum sealed chambers where like I can drift up through into into this like other room and key cards. And like, I think I would be thrilled to bits to be playing something like this. But I think I think you would find that your average D&D &D player does not like that level of surprise. Yeah, I think your average D&D &D player probably sits down with at least a loose expectation of what they're going to be getting into. And if you completely turn that on its head, then they're like, you have betrayed me and my expectations as a player. And I'm not saying that I think everybody would get really mad about it because I think some people would, but I don't think they're the majority either. But I do think a majority of people would be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't swords or sorcery. <laughs> well, remember, remember, magic is just science that we don't understand yet, according to Arthur <laughs> Clarke. <laughs> I don't know, man. Everything I read about how the weave works does not make it seem like it's going to be real scientific at any point. That's just because in D&D, they haven't discovered unified field theory yet. <laughs> it's string theory. All magic is string theory. Got it's, it. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I think, you know, like studies show that people like there's a calming, relaxing aspect for like if you rewatch something that you've seen before that you're familiar with and I have to, uh, you know, and I'm probably projecting a little bit when I say this, but I have to imagine that like there's a, a certain kernel of relevance for that to this discussion, because like if I've had like a really hard week and I'm looking forward to just like, like cutting up some kobolds or something like that. And all of a sudden I'm on it. I'm, I'm there's literally a part in this adventure where you have to convince a kickboxing robot to or no, a karate robot to fight a boxing robot um, so they can annihilate each other and not attack you. Like if I end up having to do that, I don't know how I'm going to feel like I think I'll be entertained. I think it'll be fun, but it won't be what I was expecting. And I could understand a certain level of maybe not going as far as betrayal, but just like disappointment that we didn't get to do the thing we did this other thing that was fun but it was like like if you want to go to the water park but it's raining so you go to the mall instead and see a movie like it, you had fun but it wasn't the fun you wanted to have right i think this is the kind of adventure and this is something i encourage all of our lovely gms at home to do when they're planning on doing something like this this is the kind of adventure where you have a conversation with your party in advance and you say hey guys I've got this adventure that I picked up that I'm really excited to run. And it's going to be a little bit off genre. Mm -hmm. And then your party is like, well, now, hold on mm -hmm. off genre. Like, are we talking horror? Are we talking Western? And you're like, it's going to be 
something a little bit horror and a little bit more action. And there's going to be a little bit more in the way of like sci fi stuff. And then they go, oh, OK. And if they're excited about that at that point, then when they sit down at the table and are like, oh, uh, oh what, what strange and magical metal doors are these? Then all of a sudden it you've got the buy in already. So you don't have to worry about your party sitting down and being like, man, wait a minute. What the hell is this? Mm-hmm. I'm sort of of two minds about that because I feel like back then this kind of thing would be a super surprise and it would take it would take players a little bit of time to figure out exactly what was going on. But I think there's just so much media and there's so much like niche genre content these days that players are so much more genre savvy. And if you in <laughs> in 2021, if you go to your group and are like, hey, you know, it's going to be a little bit off genre. Like the moment you get to some like metal looking doors that slide open, somebody's going to be like spaceship. Right. I think I think there's there is the temptation to make this a sort of surprise for your party. Mm -hmm. But I think if you're going to do that, you still have to have them ready to be surprised. Mm -hmm. I don't think I don't think this is the kind of adventure you just drop on your party. Yeah. And I, again, like I said, I might be projecting because it might be the difference between like a hyper plugged in gamer and somebody who's just super casual about it, who may not be like who may not be metagaming, basically, is what I'm getting at. Like they may just be sort of letting the experience wash over them rather than being like, now, what's really going on here? I don't know. I think your average player is interested in exploring the reality of what's going on around them, even if their character doesn't fully comprehend it, because mm -hmm. I think the human brain is wired to solve mysteries. Yeah. At least a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm not I'm not saying they wouldn't want to solve the mystery. I'm just saying I'm just saying nowadays, I think it would be a little bit easier to figure things out. Oh, absolutely. I fully agree with that. So something something when we decided we were going to talk about barrier peaks, something I wanted to talk about is what of all of the many and varied components of this adventure, what is one that you would steal to put in your own campaign world as something that just kind of reoccurs and is a is a just general theme of your campaign, mm -hmm. because there's so much in here that's really cool and really awesome. There's a lot that's very clearly made to be very temporary, such as the laser guns, mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, you've only got you only find this many battery packs and they only have this many shots in them. So you're only going to get to use them this many times and then you won't have them anymore. Mm -hmm. And also your DM may decide that they don't work outside the spaceship. <laughs> like. <laughs> This adventure and this adventure only like I, I, I do not fault any GMs who have made that decision and because they did not want the rest of their game world to have to deal with laser guns. I, I get it. It's totally fair. Run your game how you need to run your game. But what would you as a dungeon master take from Expedition of the Barrier Peaks and put in your world to run as part of your campaign? Hmm. Well, why don't you, you start us off while I think about it? I was about to offer you that in case you needed a minute. Yeah, go the, for it. The thing I would steal are the veggie pygmies. Mm -hmm. They are they are these. Uh, I, I'm sure everyone's super surprised that I'm excited about the monsters in the module. Um, so they are these they are these vegetable people. 
They're humanoid figures that have been slightly corrupted by vegetation within the ship due to radiation. Mm -hmm. And basically the way it ends up working is that they are these kind of vicious humanoid shaped plant monsters. And they're not they're a little too sharp to be zombie like. And so they end up being these like they blend in really well with their natural surroundings, but also they will stalk you through their natural surroundings. Mm -hmm. And then they have humanoid figures so they can do things like climb ladders and open doors and enter enter spaces and sneak around. I love it so much because the idea of these like plant people tracking the party and hiding out in the brush and blending in perfectly is simultaneously so spooky and so excellent that I would 100% be like, oh, yeah, you know what? Uh, the monsters that the Duke sent you because they were concerned about, those were veggie pygmies. They've been reproducing. The nation is slowly being overrun. This is now part of your big bad problem. Uh, be ready to deal with that on a semi-regular basis. I would say there are maybe two things for two different reasons that I would want to do. The first is this has uh, this adventure has a paralysis pistol in it that looks kind of like an onion, sort of. <laughs> um, but the thing about it is it's designed in such a way if you're familiar with like ray guns in like the 1930s through 1950s, like Columbia serial kind of description of them like bulbous uh -huh. end with a pointy end where the ray comes out of this one's designed in reverse so when you hold it like the 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 bulbous end is actually where the paralysis ray comes out and the pointy end is not if you're firing it you're supposed to have the pointy end aiming at you but anybody looking at that is going to be like oh okay well this is like the by now you know the players have figured out sort of what the situation is and they pick it up they're like this is a ray gun awesome and they hold it and they point it and they paralyze themselves <laughs> <laughs> that's the like that's the kind of like hey screw you dm kind of stuff that i like doing sometimes um i would love to have something like that uh out in the world for somebody to like just on knowing in my heart that someday somebody would pick it up try to aim it and like because even like even if you have no concept of guns like a character looking at it we are like oh, okay well the pointy end like i know what a bow and arrow is like i know what a sword is like the stuff bad stuff probably comes out of the pointy end um and it i just think it's funny uh <laughs> the <laughs> the um other thing the sort of more lasting thing i would like to do sort of in the same way you were talking about like oh the veggie pygmies like escaping and breeding and stuff like that I would like to have one of like the the maintenance robots escape. Um, oh my god! And just sort of like roam the countryside, like you know, since like Eberron and they're like being warforges and stuff like steam golems around. Um, mm -hmm. That's like less of a thing, but like if this was back in like Greyhawk or something like that, and you had just a robot, um, like people would think it was some sort of like iron golem or something like that. And, uh, you know, its batteries would eventually run down or maybe it would figure out a way to power itself with the sun or something like that. It could just be like an, an interesting uh, addition to a pure fantasy setting like that. I'm just picturing my my immediate inclination as a GM is to have anything that I introduce outside of a individual module become something that self replicates 
and mm-hmm. becomes more of a theme as the adventure goes on. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just picturing like the maintenance robot gets out, finds raw materials at a blacksmith shop, builds like two more of itself. And then the three of them just start building like a robot city somewhere in the landscape. And the party's like the party hears rumors about like metal supplies going missing for months. And they're like, man, that's that is weird. We probably should get to the bottom of that. And it's like, well, but nobody ever knows like where they go. And it's way too much metal for it to be stolen. And it's all raw materials. Like, why would you steal raw materials? And that's how we've learned that the robots have taken over Abertoral and, uh, Ravenloft setting is actually the matrix that everybody is jacked into to power the robots. Uh, I love it. Yes. Agent 100%. Strahd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. Like the, I will, I love doing stuff like that. Like I would a hundred percent have it be a situation like that. Yeah. So like you, I guess I, I think we're sort of the same way on this. Like, I really don't demand a lot of kind of like genre purity from anything that I run. Like I like I in a purely fantasy setting, I wrote a dungeon that was an office building where the party had to go through and like go through file cabinets instead of treasure chests and deal with logistics and shipping schedules for a transportation company and something like that. So like <laughs> clearly I do not hew terribly closely to these kind of things. So that sort of biases my opinion a little bit. But I think I think it's all guideline. Oh, absolutely. I was going to say, I, I think I think the uh, the leaning of that where it's like, how do we feel about genre purity is kind of thrown out the window for the two of us when you consider that we collaborated on and created a lich theme park that involved magic paintball, a flume ride complete with animatronics and a like haunted house feature like i <laughs> also defaulting on bills for ma- for like building materials was a plot point yes yes it was like we we are clearly not the kind of people to come and ask about like well what what do you really get out of genre purity because you and i are way more of like what is fun and we're gonna do that because we don't care otherwise yeah. And uh, so many times I like when I read like TTRPG Twitter and stuff like that, that is the like, that's what I keep so, sort of screaming to myself in my head, because so many people are like, well, what should we do in here? What about this rule? What do you think about this rule? And like the only in my opinion, the one true answer to that kind of thing is like, as long as everybody's having fun, the rule really doesn't matter all that much. Right. Like whatever, whatever is the most fun for your table. Yeah. And like sort of sort of to this point. Um, Like I said, this was one of the S series of like special adventures that came out, but (laughs) it wasn't included in the dungeon survival guide that like collected a lot of these when they were re-released because uh, Bill Slavicek, who used to be the director of role-playing design at WotC, like I think, I think he was one of the people that they sort of absorbed when they bought TSR and he moved into a couple of other uh, positions. But um, uh, he um, was like, yeah, that's a really great adventure, but it's not it's like a different experience. It's not really a fantasy game. You've got ray guns in there, armor, stuff like that. So that's why it wasn't included. Um, I just kind of think that's sort of like BS reasoning. I think that's like being like overly puritanical about, you know, the quote unquote source material for D&D. Well, I think I think you run into a situation where you exclude stuff like that in the name of 
maintaining the the high fantasy setting. And it's like, that could mean whatever you want it to mean. Mm -hmm. You don't, you should not feel limited. There is a Twitter account that is all about what if Strahd had a Twitter account. Yeah. And I love it. It's one of the greatest things. And that by no means holds to any sort of like strict like, oh, well, we we wouldn't have computers, so he must be sending the tweets via scrying orb or like it does. You Nobody cares about any of those rules yeah. because the fun is in the concept of Strahd jumping on Twitter and being like, can someone help me clean up my main hall? It's it's full of bodies and there's blood everywhere and it's getting to be kind of stinky. Mm-hmm. And this this servant keeps giving me dirty looks every time they walk in here. Yeah. <laughs> like the the only thing in the world, probably that I care enough about, like canonicity and purity for that kind of thing is probably Star Trek. Everything else you can do whatever and I don't care. <laughs> I mean, even Star Trek, though, kind of goes against that a little bit because there will be like the holodeck episodes where they get trapped in a uh, Jack the Ripper story or the like a Sherlock Holmes book or on a pirate ship or whatever. Like, there's you shut so your many- mouth. <laughs> There's just so many instances where it was clear that the writers were like, what if Star Trek crew, but on pirate ship, question mark? My favorite. And use they of, ran my, with that. My favorite use of the holodeck was, was when they had to recreate Riker's interaction with a scientist's wife to prove that he did not seduce her uh, and kill the scientist. And like over the course of it, they discover that Riker did basically seduce her. He just happened not to kill the scientist. And, <laughs> and like Picard, there's a great scene where like Picard and Riker like both put their head in their hands while they're sitting there at the holodeck trial because they're super, <laughs> Riker's super embarrassed for himself. And Picard is super embarrassed for himself for having Riker as his XO. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> like stuff like that is great. I don't think. If you are going, oh, well, this is the genre and we have to stick to it because that's what people expect. I think you're limiting yourself. Mm -hmm. You're not you're not allowing yourself to be as creative as you want to be because you're telling yourself you can't for X, Y, Z reason. Consider the possibility that maybe you can like you. You don't have to. I'm not saying do that all the time. I'm not saying, you know, take every idea and implement it. Like, obviously, we we throw caution to the wind carefully. But simultaneously, like do what's fun for you and your table and throw the rules to the wind when you need to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another thing about Barrier Peaks is that it's very much an old school adventure since it's, you know, it's, you know, something Gygax wrote in the 70s. So it's about as like original as you can get. It's like, it's like <laughs> it's like among the Matthew, Mark, Luke and John of the early TTRPG <laughs> history. But uh-huh. um, uh, it you know, you read through it and it very much reads like a product of its time, like reading, reading it versus reading something even that came out 20 years ago is just so different. It's it's coming from an entirely different culture, like like you guys make fun of the way I write stuff sometimes with like hyper detail and everything like that. And this puts this makes me look like a slacker. 
like reading through it. There's there's so much of everything. It's just so dense and thick with information. And I was Googling around and I found some blogs of some folks who like have run it in the modern era. There's a 5e conversion for it and people have done sort of like their own 5e and 4e conversions of it over the years. Um, but person was like, there's too much. Their chief criticism was like, there's absolutely too much. I was running this for like a one-off group that I we play like once a month, once every three weeks at like, absolutely. I had to cut out so much of this and we still ended up going over like a few sessions with what was originally supposed to be a one shot. So it was, it was absolutely ridiculous. And, um, there's that. And then there's just sort of the inherent and unforgiving danger that exists here, which is another product of, of Gygax. And, you know, classic, classic guy gags. Yeah. Like Tomb of Horrors type stuff. Like you make one wrong step and you're done. Um, It's really unforgiving. And I don't like playing that way uh, because. Like this is a whole other argument, but like I very much feel like players should always have the opportunity to survive, even if it means like they're, you know, uh, severely troubled for it or something like there's a penalty. Um, But just the idea of like instant death to me is no fun. Like, yeah, it makes it a little bit more real, especially if you're exploring someplace that you've never been. And there are these weird monsters and gadgets and gizmos and stuff like that. But that has to take a backseat to people actually having fun. There's like nothing worse than like in like a six hour session, your character dying after like two hours. And then you're just kind of sitting there. I have frequently gotten the impression that the way Gygax ran tables was that you came with multiple character sheets and you expected to implement all of them before the night was out. And I'm sure a lot of that comes from the like the wargaming um, influence on early tabletop role playing games, because it was just sort of a different way of thinking about it because it was a different crowd, because like that's another thing you have to remember is like the crowd for tabletop role playing now is way different than it was, you know, 45 years ago. Right. It'd be like the I guess the comparison now would be sitting down with a group who's been playing Warhammer 40K their entire gaming career and Mm -hmm. saying, hey, you know how you guys like to talk about armies destroying each other and things like that. What if we were playing individual characters in those armies, but we weren't doing like so much of the destroying each other as we were like exploring the world that those armies inhabit? I think I think you would end up with a lot of like, oh, well, we need the minis and we need the map Mm -hmm. and we need to know exactly where we're positioned. And these will be cone attacks and these will be line attacks and these will be like it's it's pretty easy to see where wargaming influences are at the core of early D&D. And if you flip through the book for this, like there's so many detailed maps like set up all on a grid system and there's nothing wrong with that. It can just be very limiting sometimes, in my opinion, for play. Uh, especially like freeform sort of improvisational play. Um, it's, you know, it's very much set up like that. Like this, when this came out, I think it was two books, I believe. One was like 32 pages that had the adventure and all this stuff. And then I, there was another one that was also 30 some pages that came out that was like illustrations and maps and everything like that. Uh, like the the PDF of the original that I was able to find online is something like 105 pages. So there's obviously some more there that I'm not accounting for in those numbers. But just like that's massive. That's that's very massive. I mean, I'm seeing different hit dice for different groups of monsters mm-hmm. so that they've got different amounts of HP for each monster you fight. Yeah. And I'm like, homie. 
<laughs> yeah, that's like and I think I, I think, again, that goes back to like wargaming and stuff and the amount of preparation that would have to go into those things. Like it was very different, like trying to play D&D on a Friday night in, you know, 1978, 1979 versus playing it in 2021, you know, like you would spend a lot of time preparing for that one session. Now it's just like, well, I've written like a page that's roughly set up into three paragraphs. So the story kind of has a three act structure. We should be able to get through this in like four hours tonight. I think I was going to say, if you're writing a page with three or four paragraphs, you're a full two and a half steps ahead of most of my home games. Yeah. Most of my home games are like, a sentence for each act. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was telling you before we started recording, I'm about to finish something that I'm writing that is about 20 pages long and it is mm -hmm. killing me. It mm -hmm. is killing me. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. It's a whole lot. I think I, I think though that something like um, Barrier Peaks and this is true of a lot of those early adventures and I'm sure we'll talk about more of them. Uh is one of those things you should really do. Like in the same way that like yeah, you should watch Casablanca. You know, you should you should read the Maltese Falcon like these are things like to be a part of the culture. This is something that you should experience. And I certainly would not. Uh, like lean too heavily on advocating that somebody play the first edition version of this thing, but <laughs> there is like a semi official. Well, it's basically official 5e update for it that Goodman Games did. They have like a working agreement with Wizards of the Coast right now. So they've done they've got some licensing deals with them. So um, it has uh, like they've released a hardback version of it. And uh, I think it was like December 2019. And um, it's in fifth edition and everything like that. And if you go to their website, Goodman-Games.com on their online store, you can buy it in hardback. It's not available in PDF for what I can only assume is a licensing reason. Um, I like I can't think of a reason otherwise, um, but it's fifty dollars. It's forty nine ninety nine. Um, so you got to really want it, but they do a really good job with it. Um, and from what I understand, the five E conversion on it is like super top notch. And I would, you you started this out being very excited about it, but you also said like, oh, well, it's a classic that you should experience to really be part of the culture. I think. I think I'm picking up what you're laying down, which mm -hmm. is that if you want to be able to speak the same language as a lot of the people who've been at this for a super long time, mm -hmm. this will give you common ground to stand on. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean it like you should be familiar with it. I'm not saying you need to get six people together and play it necessarily, <laughs> but you should read it. You should be familiar with it. It's 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 like reading. It's, it's like reading about, you know, the Punic Wars or something like that. It's it's something that you need to know to be part of Western culture. It's it is a helpful touchstone yeah. for a lot of stuff that happens in even modern day D&D. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, looking at it through the historical lens of like it came before there was more genre savviness and everything. Everything was a little bit harder. Everything was a little bit more unforgiving. It gives you a good baseline since this is basically something coming from right around the beginning. Like, because, you know, technically this is set in Greyhawk, so it's about as, you know, far back as you can get without getting into sort of the proto history of the of the, <laughs> of the brand. Um, it, it's just it's a really good sort of first principles lesson on how this used to be done. Fully agreed. And since it's available on PD as a PDF for free on the Internet or as a lovely hardcover book that you can run with friends, 
Uh, it makes it it makes it easy to dive into it and see what some of the things you like out of it and what sort of things you might beg, borrow or steal mm -hmm. from it. Uh, you know, it, it kind of helps expand the lexicon a little bit, which is helpful for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, it is available for free as, in a PDF. We won't tell you where to get it because we're not sure how legal it is. But um, <laughs> I will say if you get it and you read it and then you're like, oh, wow, this is cool. And you happen to have 50 bucks lying around. Maybe consider throwing that at Goodman Games because they did a really good job converting it to 5e to make it more accessible for everybody. Kind of like I look at that in sort of a similar way of like they took a Rosetta Stone and translated Egyptian hieroglyphs so they could be read by modern people like they're preserving history by doing that. I was thinking along the lines of if you have any interest of actually taking elements from this adventure or running this adventure, then go go by the Goodman Games version so that you can encourage people to do more of that work. Mm -hmm. Because that's that's the way these things get made, folks. Yeah. You and support they, the artists that are making them. And they actually have a lot of those like re really early, early first edition conversions to 5e. Like they've got a whole series of them. So it's really cool and it's really worth checking out. I personally don't have $500 to drop on it, but I would be <laughs> interested in picking and choosing like one. And this would probably right. be the one I would buy. That does not surprise me even a little bit. All right. Well, I think that uh, sort of exhausts us there on Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. Bottom line, check it out. It's an interesting historical artifact and it probably has a lot to inform the way you put games together and the way games have been put together in the past. Even if you're not planning on running it for your own group, treat it like a treat it like a history book. Treat it like reading Shakespeare in high school. Like it's it's going to help you understand a little bit better where we're coming from. And years later, you'll look back on it and be like, that was rewarding. And I just didn't realize it at the time. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week uh, with the Goblins and Growlers podcast. I'm Brandon Dingus. I'm at way of Brandalore on Twitter. And I'm Josh Maltby. I'm at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. You can follow the uh, actions of Goblins and Growlers at Goblins Growlers on Twitter. And we will catch you next time on the Goblins and Growlers podcast. Talk to you next week. Bye, y'all. Hey, all you great and gorgeous goblins. Uh, just a note. We're planning on releasing episodes of the Goblins and Growlers podcast bi-weekly for the time being, but we got plenty of content ready to go weekly. We just don't have time to edit it. If we were able to get the Patreon a bit higher, wink, wink, we could pay a part-time audio engineer to edit these episodes for us and turn them around faster and get you weekly content. So, you know, I'm not telling you what to do, but <coughs> patreon.com slash goblinsgrowlers. <coughs>